Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. You are listening to The Britflix Fright Fest Preview Podcast. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And today, I've got with me Michael Mongelo. Hello there, Michael. How are you, Stuart? I'm doing all right, I think. As I said to you beforehand, I had a bit of a hospital thing today, but now I can see. I have 20-20 vision. So that was always a bonus <laughs> out of today's proceedings. What about and yourself? Required for watching movies. <laughs> Too bloody right, yeah. No, it, did, it did dawn on me that I was thinking, this, can't, this won't be good professionally. Well, I'm glad you're okay. Indeed, indeed. Now, we've not come here just to talk about my eyeballs. We've come to talk about your film, Diane, which is playing at FryFest. It is. It is on uh, Friday at 10.50 p.m., and then again on Saturday, I believe, 3.50 p.m. You know what? You'll be surprised how many people whose films are showing don't know when the film is showing. So you've already got a gold star there, Michael. <laughs> well, I'm working from memory, so I might, <laughs> might, might, might have to be silver. Okay, buddy. Okay. Um, right. Now, you, you directed this movie and you also wrote this movie. So I feel like we can cover a lot of ground here in a short space right. of time discussing how this film was made. So let's, let's start with the – actually, I'll tell you where to start. Give, sure. the, give the listener a, a brief synopsis as to what Diane is about. Uh, Diane is about a fellow named Steve who's an Afghan war, American, American Afghan war vet. And uh, he wakes up one morning to discover the dead body of a local community theater singer, Diane, in his backyard. Mystery ensues. Indeed it does. Indeed it does. So, um, now, I'm looking at IMDb, and it's got source material, Mark Giannini. Giannini, Giannini, yes. And, obviously, you down a screenplay. So, what's the conception for this screenplay, then? How does that work? Well, I was looking for a feature that could be done low budget, and I've got uh, shelf loads of screenplays, Uh, many of which have been optioned by other filmmakers and producers and, of course, films that I would like to make myself. But we really, after my business partner and I, who's also the star of Diane, Jason Allen Smith, Mm -hmm. in the trenches, in Hollywood, um, development, you know, in every production hub with all sorts of people, we find ourselves almost 10 years since our last feature film, without another feature film project off the ground. So we got together, did a Kickstarter campaign, and uh, you know decided to raise a little money based on the material from Matt Giannini, 
which was a great screenplay called Death Special. Okay. Um, and I really like the core concepts of it, which is the, 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 the man discovering the body of uh, this woman in his backyard and some of the mystery elements and some of the policemen and policewomen characters from that screenplay. But it was, and Matt's a great guy and a very talented guy, but the script was just a little too hardcore for me. It basically goes into necrophilia and all sorts of crazy places that um, I just wasn't really willing to go and, and frankly didn't interest me that much. So he was a sweetheart, let me adapt his material, and this is where we ended up with Diane. That that kind of makes sense then. As yeah, I can see where where you 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 could have deviated into something. A lot more murky, for want of a better expression. Yes, very, very creepy, and and again, a great screenplay from Matt. Who and it was a very uh, easy to produce, low budget film, few locations, few characters, and a lot of that also uh, was retained in the version of it that that I did, which is at its core. Um, you know, I owe that uh, that concept to Matt for sure, but it really veered off of where he was going. His film was just, I just, you know, I have to admit, even very erotic in all the right creepy ways. Really, I'd like to see his film get made too. But here we are with Diane. Indeed, indeed. Now, it's you, you, you play you, with the way you tell the story. You you're playing with a kind of non-linear approach, aren't you? This is, <laughs> this is not a straightforward beginning, middle, and end, is it? No, no, not at all, um, which I really felt was the best way to let the mystery reveal itself, um, how much you hold back, how much you give. Um, and like with a lot of films, especially if you watch them a second time, if you were to watch Diana a second time, you'd see all the signposts that tell you where it goes. I, of course, don't want to give it away, and I'm sure you don't want to either. No, no, of course, of course. There's one, there's one I could say, and I think it, it's ambiguous enough, I think, for those listening, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't spoil the film. But when I was, when I was watching it, I kind of made a note, and, and it, it, it'll, let me make you laugh this, because obviously you, pay, you do pay this off. And I wrote a note to myself going, what's the symbolism of him throwing away his walking stick? <laughs> I actually wrote that down, because I couldn't, you know, because at the time when it happens, and for a large chunk of the movie, that just seems like literally a throwaway moment. Mm, yes. And yet, you, with the way you tell the story, we're rewarded with our patience. With an yes. answer to that, I won't, I won't go into it because it's part of how you tell the story. But it was funny, you know. I always found that funny myself, as a you know, you're trying to make sense of a movie that you're watching for the first time, and and you make you make little notes in the margins for yourself. And I was like, and when it when it when it when you paid it off, I was like, you cheeky devil. <laughs> I'm glad that worked for you. <laughs> but, that, but that's the kind of thing, and you, you, you pay it off with diff, in different timelines, don't you? It's not like it's a linear thing that you pay it off on. It's the what you what you choose to tell us and when you choose to tell us it. Yes, yes. And um, I, I like that one, that uh, that detail even comes up in the, the alternate timelines that you're talking about. And... Um, a lot of specific ways, if you're really observant, you get, it really has, that, that cane has a lot of payoffs. Everybody yeah, should watch for the cane. Of course, yeah, yeah, no, totally. So yeah. when, when you were pulling this together, was you, was you looking at it as a straight line and then you started to play around with how you wanted to tell it? Or was it always something that you, you began telling as this mystery that reveals itself? I uh, wrote it uh, as as it appears uh, in the final film, mm -hmm. um, which 
in the writing process, and especially when you're seeing the film in your head and how you want to tell that story in a nonlinear fashion, yeah. it becomes very much the answer question scenario. So you know the answer, you've got to figure out your answers, but you've got to figure out where the question gets asked and if those payoffs and connections make sense. I don't know, you tell me. I mean, uh, we've definitely had a couple of screenings and I've heard a lot of people talk about how they like these connections. I think the film is pretty bulletproof. Did you find any flaws in it? No, 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 that's what, that's, I mean, I don't want to give too many away, but the, the one that stood out, because I literally made a note of like, why is it, do, <laughs> why is it doing that? Why did you do that? And obviously it, revealed, it, it, you, it gets explained really neatly. Uh, nice. no, no, because the, the clever thing you do, and the reason I asked if it was mapped out first is because a big chunk of the movie, you're taking us into the kind of haunted mind of a man that we know as, as, a, as an army veteran. So there's all kinds of, that's a loaded gun, isn't it? That, that, that personality. Sure. Uh, and so you, you go, you know, you go into kind of quite psychedelic. I mean, it's not literally, you can, you can see what's going on, but, mm -hmm. but it's an unreality you're taking us into, which, um, which is a lot about, and it's not just dreams. It's like, it's his perception of what's going on while he's trying to figure out the problem or equally, is he dealing with the problem? You know, as, however you want to put it. No, yeah, that you put it. I'll leave it to that. That was well put. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, he's yeah. It's it's like you said. Some. Uh, I'm glad you caught on some of the psychedelic elements, and uh, I liked the questions of you know what are his thoughts, what are his dreams, what are his perceptions, and uh, finding a way to make that work in a narrative that still can make sense to people when you start to break it down as a literal story happening, happening in, in literal reality. Um, and I, I, I liked the flavors that, that we, thrown it, we threw in there. And, and I say we, because I've got, of course, a lot of great collaborators and we rely on each other. But those were some brave steps for me as a filmmaker. And, and, and in terms of the look and feel of some of those moments, because it is, it is clear when, we're, when, when we look at the screen, when we're not in reality and when we are, but it doesn't feel like we've, it's not jarring as such. So what was your discussions with your cinematographer about those sort of different styles and tones you were going to adopt for different parts of what the story was telling? We, uh, great, great cinematographer uh, uh, by a guy, a guy by the name of A.E. Griffin out of um, Michigan, in fact. Okay. Um, and uh, just a terrific guy and, and a terrific collaborator, a director himself. Um, and we really nailed down kind of some basic elements of, of those sections, which were how we would light them and when and how we would decide to move the camera. So uh, you'll notice there's a lot of handheld work throughout the, most of the film, and you'll see that when the camera is on sticks and, and a nice still image, a lot of those images come within those alternate reality sequences that uh, kind of give it a signpost and a different feel and I'm sure this isn't really giving much away either. We also gave uh, the color correction a very different um, overall tone and feel. So we went through and timed the film with my post-production supervisor, also the producer of the film, uh, Taylor Warren. Um, we had some very specific guidelines uh, about the different looks. So we had uh, the main narrative reality, which we wanted to look like uh, a colorized black and white film. So, of course, we shot the film in color, yeah. but then we, then we stripped all the color 
and put it back in as if we were colorizing a movie like It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know if you've seen the colorized version of It's a Wonderful Life, but I've kept, on referring, to, I've kept on referring to that. I mean, I love the black and white version as a purist, of course, but yeah. it's one of those movies I return to a lot. And I often find I've got the version, the DVD with the color and the colorized with the colorized version and the black and white version, and I more often than not put in the colorized version because it's just such a a great kind of wash of color that gives it a really interesting visual quality. And then we had the different sequences in the film that were more like the reality uh, that you would see looking outside. And, and as you mentioned with your eye uh, exam today, so you're seeing it like you would through your own eyes in reality. And then we had other sections, of course, that we did a complete color wash on things, which I also think were helpful to help the viewer understand where they were in the film. And and, and there's a there's a I mean obviously a, a clever turning point obviously is is in, in any film that starts off with within within the first five minutes somebody getting home and there's a dead body in their garden. <laughs> that's that's never never a bad place to start a horror film. <laughs> here, yes, here we are. Um, but it's. But that, but that also, because the reason I say that is because we, we, we see Diane singing in the opening sequence of the movie, and then there's a lovely, and because of the music she's singing, there's a, I mean, I, I, did, enjoy, I did enjoy your choice of music throughout the film, actually. The, um, I, had to, I had to go back and uh, shazam a few so I knew what I was going to say. So, oh, sure. Yeah, there was... Um, the, uh, the, 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 the soundtrack choices were, they're a band, uh, unfortunately they broke up uh, pretty recently called Sleeping in the Aviary. Yeah, uh, Things Look Good, is, was, the, the tune Things Look Good, as, which, cuts, which cuts straight from Diane's beautiful kind of uh, lounge singing, mm-hmm. is a nice switch of pace and we, then, we go, then we meet Steve, don't we? And he's kind of back, he's backed up to this tune and you're kind of getting this idea of this kind of workaday American blue collar and that all feels, you know, that feels very real. Oh, good, good. I didn't know if that was uh, uh, too much. You know, I did exactly, that's exactly what I wanted to do is go from uh, that very elegant space that we start the movie in with Diane singing to a very punk rock feel, which I feel the movie visually has a bit of a punk rock aesthetic, too. I mean, and, 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 and there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pressure on, on, um, on Jason Allen's, Alan Smith in terms of this film, because... Clearly, he carries a lot of it, doesn't he? And 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 a lot of the action is just him, isn't it? As well, it's not just it's not just him acting off somebody else. You you give him a lot, you give him a lot to do in this movie, which, which is by himself, isn't it? Because he's dealing with what he's thinking, and we're having to see all that. So, what what was from a director point of view? And and you've already you've said you said you know he's a he's a friend and I guess collaborate as well. So, how did the pair of you work together to develop the character of Steve for this movie? Well, I, you know, I uh, have to admit, with, with Jason, I've known him for such a long time. Uh, we've worked on, on three movies together, and we partnered up after we did Being Michael Matson together, where okay. he, he uh, played uh, the, the paparazzi character. And I find that I do most of my work as a director directing actors in casting. Um, and the thing with Jason, having known him and trusted him for so long, he really came in armed with that character almost completely, and uh, as any good actor should. Mm. And I love the process of collaboration so much when, and I work with a bit of an ensemble now of people I've worked with in the past because I, I know I can rely on them to show up with something that's going to be even better than I imagined. And I really felt, thought this character was going to be a stretch 
for Jason, who's an incredibly uh, good-looking, dynamic, very funny guy, uh, great personality, gregarious, and he's going to come in and play this complete introvert, damaged individual. Mm. And and he required very little directing, and it was always just adjustments. What I think, you know, my job became as the director with him was just reminding him where he was in story. And I often ask him, I even he can't answer that question. I've said, Jason, how did you pull off this character, make this character so engaging and dynamic? And he then puts the compliment back to me. He says, you wrote the script. I just lived the truth of it. So that great yeah, because because there's a, there's there's, a, there's something you give us really early on, which is this idea of almost like an obsessive compulsive, you know, um, which is which is I guess I guess maybe that's either either what he always was or maybe a symptom of his of his time being a soldier, um, sure. and it's 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 a really nice it's a really nice way because it's not expected and it's kind of you're you're seeing a man as as the audience you're seeing a man that has lived has lived a life you know before we see him on screen. And the people that he comes across, because of his kind of almost like his detachment, he's mm-hmm. acting like it's the first time he's met them. They're all like familiar as hell with him, and it's, <laughs> yes. and it's a really, it's a really jar. You know, that's quite jarring as, as drama goes because clearly they all know who he is because they have regular contact with him. But he's he's standoffish. He's not letting anyone in, is he? No, no, very closed off um, emotionally for all the reasons that are revealed in the film. And thank you for catching on to the obsessive compulsive disorder part, which also is part of that character and all of his coping mechanisms that he uses in order to get through his day. Mm. Yeah, because there's a, there's a really, it's a real nice, simple touch, but the, the, the constant use of the ID badge when he goes to the... To the, um, I guess, is it a pawn store or something? Is that where yeah, yeah, where you can get your, ca- your checks cashed. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always the same thing, just, you know, also something learned from his military days. It's all about procedure and policy, procedure and policy. Now, now, Carly, is it Avers, do I pronounce the name? Carly Avers, yes. Yeah. Um, she she gets to play Diane, and it's a, it's a, I mean, she's a gorgeous woman, and, and for most, for the, for the early parts of the movie, we we don't we don't see a gorgeous well we we, we see her without the, with bed and closing but we're not seeing the, the the glamour of her at all apart from that the, the singing moment. Um, what was what was your conversations with her then about? Because obviously that's a quite a that's quite a, a journey in terms of a character, isn't it? What you're expecting her to do. So right right yeah uh, we had a lot of conversations leading up to working together and uh, I I. I, I I gotta tell you, I don't think I directed her much at all. She was just delivering. And I'd always go over to her, and so she didn't feel neglected to me. And I would say to her, "I have nothing for you. You're just—I don't want to make any adjustments. You're just—you're just doing great." But we had a lot of conversations ahead of time, which really focused around the, how do we make this character who is ever present in the film, although not in as much of the film as the other uh, lead character that Jason plays, Steve, um, and give her the depth. And empathy. I want the I want to care. I want the audience to feel empathy for her, and not have her come off as a cliche femme fatale, which structurally I think she does represent, and I kind of can't get away from that. But it was really, really important to me. And I also had this conversation with Austin Wintory, who wrote the opening song and did the score. Mm. You know, he felt that she was antagonistic, and I said, no, no. You know, she, this is a person who I want to be real. This is a person who had real dreams and has real talent. 
who was never able to get beyond a certain level in the entertainment industry. So she's damaged goods. I mean, you know, we read about all these people that we romanticize, and these are part of the conversations I had with Carly. You know, we read about our favorite authors, you know, from 100 years ago who were never discovered until after their death. And, you know, you even look at somebody like Terrence Malick, who, uh, whose career was a flop until it was resurrected from producers who were young enough to have seen his films at a certain age and then were powerful enough to get his films made. And you look at these people um, in, in every musicians, actors, filmmakers, mm. authors, go on and on and on. And we have this person who we're meeting who's never going to be that person we, we're going to hear about. But that person's life is just as valid, and their hopes and dreams and how they become damaged by that is really what I wanted her to, to give us. So as an audience member, we could watch this person and have her story unfold and feel it as being tragic and real as opposed to her being this femme fatale who weaves her web around another damaged person. And so, of course, you have these two damaged people who meet, who, um, and I think I'm giving a little too much away about the film, but... Uh, I was going to say, let, let's get away from that, because I was going to say, yeah. was, this, this, I don't think this, from what you said, I don't think this gives any more away, but I think what's, what's lovely about that is, is that you, 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 you lean on the, the wanton ambition part of her, which is kind of, it's, it's an attractive part of her, and, and, and hide the femme fatale element until you really have to let it show, and so in some senses, and, and, and we all know that the you know the entertainment industry, whichever walk of life you enter, is by no means a meritocracy. You can sound just like Jimi Hendrix, but if nobody ever ever comes anywhere near you, right? You know the stars the stars have to align even for Tom Cruise to be where he is. They they align sometimes, and you make your own damn look. We all know that as well. Sure, nobody's, sure. Nobody's waiting. To, no one's going to discover you, but. Nobody's entitled to be discovered either, are they? And, that, and I think her character sort of encapsulates that quite well. Thank you. I, I, I hope so. That was really the goal. It's kind of funny. I read that line in uh, one of those 33 and a third books I was reading last night about the modern lovers. It was the exact, almost exactly what you just said, is that um, there's the, the myth of being discovered is just that. Nobody mm. gets discovered. <laughs> no, there's a great, I don't know if you've ever read it, there's a great book called The War, War of Art or War on Art by Stephen Pressfield. Who yes. is, is a screenwriter, and and in that he talks a lot about you know it's just your sacrifice is about you going to the mountain. The mountain ain't ever coming to you, and you might never get there, or something, or something like that. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, I'm familiar with that great book. And, and, and well, those and going back to your question, that's where we really drew upon uh, building her character. And I know that Carly used those conversations to build her character. And I'll reveal something about that character, which is why the few people have said, oh, she's a bit of a femme fatale. I was like, you know, if I've ever written at least anything that's autobiographical in my scripts, that's the character I infused much of my angst about not having the career that I hope to have, mm. where, you know, where I am now. I'm very, very fortunate. And I often have to, you know, follow that statement with my acknowledgement and gratitude for where I am as, as a filmmaker. And there's a lot of people who would love to be exactly where I am, you know, but of course we all, we all want to be Steven Soderbergh. We, we all want to be Martin Scorsese and, and get to do whatever we want, whenever we want. No, and I mean, of course, I, I, that's just our perception of their careers, of course, but a, a true statement more or less. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's a friends of mine teach at, at university and stuff and they, they're constantly reminding students that you shouldn't be using anyone's success as a measure 
of how good or bad you are. It's the, um, you, whatever you've done, as long as you're, you've got momentum, you've got to look at where you've traveled from mm-hmm. and not be constantly obsessed with where you think you've got to get, where you've got to get to. I mean, I remember, I remember listening to an interview with, uh, presumably you're familiar with the band Megadeth and obviously Metallica. So Dave Mustaine was in Metallica. He, lead, he goes and forms Megadeth. Megadeth sell five billion whatever albums, so they've sold more than most bands do. But they're never going to be as big as ne- they've never been as big as Metallica. So Dave Mustaine constantly is moaning about the fact that he's a world famous thrash metal guitar band member. Yet it's because he's not in Metallica that he's really having a moan. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how annoying is that for us to hear? So that's why I always try and tone it down when I talk about those sorts of things. Um, but that's really where a lot of that came from. You know, you go to, as, as a creative person, you, you feel the need to create. And um, as a filmmaker, it's it's so difficult because it's such a collaborative art form that requires so much money. You know, it's like, gosh, couldn't I have been born a poet or a painter? <laughs> you know, here we are. Um, and uh, again, it's, it's uh, it, it has been a great journey. And, and I often remind myself of a quote similar to what you, you quoted there from uh, Joe Lansdale, the, the, the great horror author. Um, one, of, one of my favorite quotes from him in, in one of his essays was, just concentrate on doing good work and your audience will find you. Oh, oh yeah, no, I like that one. I've, yeah. heard, I've not heard that one. That's a good one. Um, yeah. So, so in terms of, um, in terms of d- d- directing this movie, you, um, you, 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 you made some clear production choices, which is about limited locations and stuff, which obviously help keep budgets down um so in that sense and films obviously don't still work on a finite budget no matter how much you get prepared for it what were your what do you remember being the sort of rabbit rabbit out of the hats that you pulled you know in terms of what you're able to achieve with what little yet what little resource and finance you had to make the movie and i don't mean that's that isn't me trying to belittle what you've achieved at all no no Um, it's 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 a low budget film (laughs) it's denying um we Got very, very lucky um, with uh, the city of New Britain, Connecticut. Right. Uh, um, we uh, wanted to shoot this house uh, at this house in New Britain, uh, which is actually owned by Dick Boland, who plays Detective Bernard. Okay. Um, so that's actually his house that we used, and we knew that we were going to use that house. And... Um, we said, hey, you know, gosh, we've got all these street scenes and all these things that we really would rather have occur in a busy place. And you're seeing you in all those open city scenes with cars driving by and yeah, people yeah. driving by yeah, and things yeah, like sure. that. Of course, yeah. And so also shooting in a neighborhood that really wasn't the best neighborhood, a lot of crime and also, you know, just people wanting to know what's going on with the movie. And sometimes you, of course, run into a little bit of trouble. So we were able to convince uh, the mayor's office and the chief of police, Zena, at uh, the mayor's office in New Britain and uh, Chief Wardwell uh, of, of, of the city of New Britain, actually watched my previous films, uh, read the screenplay, loved it. Uh, chief, the chief of police really loved the authenticity of the police procedure. Um, and they basically, the big rabbit out of the hat was, we had uh, police accompaniment for free the whole movie. They basically wow. shot the streets for us, um, provided security, and obviously all appeared in the film. All the police officers you see in the film and the police cars, all of that was 
gratis from the city. And that's production values you, you, that you don't you don't have to make, then, aren't you? As well, at the same time. Oh. <laughs> yes. Most of my uh, um, scripts take place in a fiction in a fictional town called Fairview, but this time they had to take place in the real city of New Britain. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's interesting at the I was going to the the, the uh, I had a note to to talk about because that I guess if there's if there's if there's a kind of levity in the film it's 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 achieved through your uh, your police characters isn't it and I don't mean that in a, it's not jovial by any stretch but right but they they bring a kind I mean I guess they bring a normalness to to what's happening in the story that keep us that keep us in terms in terms of the story grounded in the in the, the notion of we need to find out why. Diane's body was in his yard, and the police are obviously a constant reminder of that. But also, the way they go about their job, it's, it's, there's, there's a bit, I, I'm guessing there's a bit, you were trying to go, there is some humour, and, and it's, yeah. it's, it's police humour at that, but it's, it's I mean, not to say set up, a, but, you know, set up and, and hit gags out the park or anything, but certainly their characters are very different. You certainly know they're different from Steve and Diane, don't you? Sure, sure. And I wanted... I, I, you know, I, when I'm growing up, you know, my uh, my parents were friends with a lot of police officers, and uh, you know, uh, to the point where, um, you know, we would go on trips with them, either motorcycle trips or scuba diving trips and things like that. So I got to know a lot of these guys, and they're they are a certain type, but they're all very real people, and and I, I really just wanted, and that's why those little moments that you thought had some levity. I'm glad you thought so because I just it was so important for me that they just not be two-dimensional characters that they have these interactions between each other and you know you even get glimpses into um some of their some of their lives where you know we learn maybe a little bit that the the, the detective Bernard character is like a fantasy fan you know of uh Yeah that Lord was quite that was that. that was quite a weird moment that yeah but I, I always, I always like those little non sequiturs. You know, mm. they, they make it seem a little more real. Yeah, because it's kind of like it's kind of like at that point. It feels like he's pulling a rabbit out of his hat. And so, but you see, when you see the look on his colleague's face, you're like, oh yeah, no, it was weird. That definitely, <laughs> <laughs> which he addresses. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, Michael, there's a, there's a there's a particular choice of um, frame that, that that I noticed that was repeated at least once from when I originally saw it. So in the early part of the movie, we get this kind of grand framed shot of, of Steve and it, it, it's, it's the camera's looking right up at him. He fills it with his, his arms are out of his side and, you know, it's, it's part of his, you're, you're seeing, he's acting, his confusion, his, 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 his bemusement and, and everything. And then the same, almost like the same frame, but without the crime scene, is there too. And I just wondered if that was, you know, if that was a purposeful thing or is that just, just me joining dots that aren't there? No, no, it, it, was, it was purposeful. I, I, um, I always like to give those little visual landmarks, so I'm glad you were able to catch them. Mm. And... Uh, I don't want. We won't talk about why we connect those dots because it might reveal a little too much about the film. Yeah, sure. But, but uh, it's funny when I uh, I don't really work off of storyboards. I work off of little thumbnails, almost like animatics. Got which um, screenplay, if you print it out, is single sided. So you got the back of the other page to draw notes on. So if you look at all the work I do, it's little thumbnails and or little shot lists or, or camera setup lists, lens choices, things like that, that help me match. And often when I map out the film before shooting it, I'll make those little reference points just like that. It's like exact shot as seen X because I've wanted you to make those connections. Got you, got you, okay. 
Do you know what? I've read, the only time I've, I've I, I was uh, one time when I was in, I went to LA for for a week one time, and I, and I ventured into the WGA library, and I read um oh god what was it now I read a John Ford script, and it was full of those kind of descriptions. In, it was like a, it was like a really weird way of presenting a screenplay, but it would also go. It would also reference other movies, so it would say, oh, well, it, would, "It would say on in in type in type as well." It wasn't it was like a, a, a sketchy note in the side of the mm-hmm. margins. It was literally the screenplay would say, "Riding up the hill, blah blah," you know, is as you would normally see action, and then it's got as you've seen in I don't know, "Singing in the Rain," and you're like, right, "Wow, right. this is amazing!" If I wrote that, people would hit me. <laughs> oh yeah, it's and that's always one of the funny things about the rule, the so-called rules of screenwriting. I mean, you've probably read some of Lem Dobbs' scripts, which are read like novels. Um, wrote uh, Dark City and The Limey. Oh right, example. okay, okay. No, no, I've not read them. No, but do, do they? They, it's almost exactly like like a novel. So mm. obviously, you you achieve a certain status in the industry. You could just write whatever you want, and people have to take it. True, true. No, I haven't. I haven't achieved that status yet. So uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll hang fire on that front. Um, so, where, where? One last question then. Where, where would you say you're you're taking your director lead from with this film? What would what would be good tonal references for people to to consider when thinking about your move, going to see your movie? Um, you know, I can't escape. Um... Certain influences by Brian De Palma, who's uh, one of my favorite filmmakers. Obviously, a lot of people think he's derivative of Hitchcock, but I think that's a huge undervalue of uh, his contributions to cinema. Um, But I think for this film in particular, it's going to be difficult for people to see that because a lot of it was approached from the necessities uh, required of making a low-budget film. So I think it's going to be more Dogma 95, more early... Uh, 70s American filmmaking, John Cassavetes, um, uh, William Friedkin, uh, those those sorts of uh, films that were very documentary influenced with a lot of uh, handheld cameras, natural lighting, practical lighting sources and things like that. So I think it's got that kind of what I call that punk rock feel It's mm. made from from necessity. Um, and, and just kind of interestingly and coincidentally, I. Uh, had reason to watch a lot of uh, Val, Luton, uh, Val Luton's films, again, Cat People and, uh, y- you know, the, the famous RKO uh, horror from the 40s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really hadn't been exposed to that before a college course that I took, a dark cinema study. And watching these films again, they're these very bleak, melodramatic, existential sort of horror films and I was kind of surprised and maybe I'm just applying this because of the coincidence of having seen those films recently but I think it I think Diane feels a lot like a Val Luton production to me I could I could see where you're coming from there all right I mean one the one the one I was thinking about the cat people is 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 not not what what that is just more the fact that the, the film is one of those great examples of of what you don't see is what's what is what is going to get to you, isn't it? That's the that's kind of one of its its landmark landmark points, isn't it? In, sure. in horror horror cinema. Absolutely. And if you look at some of his other films, it's uh, again the the genre as backdrop. You know, you've got these very deep um, 
human stories, and again, like I said, some of them highly melodramatic, um, all dealing with this existential, this weird existential angst, and um, you know, there's a horror movie in there somewhere. Mm. When you were um, when you were thinking about the the sort of haunting element of of your uh, of what develops, um, were you con? I mean, you li- he literally goes on Google to, to to sort of explain it to himself. It's a it's it's a it's a wonderful moment of a man dealing with crisis while at the same time being able to deal in the real world. And I thought it was a lovely lovely counterbalance as to where the story was and is going. That we've got a man who's we think is not quite holding on to reality anymore, and yet he's he's doing his damn best. And I guess a man who's who's survived and been injured in a war is got. I guess it makes for a good character who you could justify that sort of activity happening. I, I, I thought so. I, I um, it, it's it's always just what you go back to. I think when writing and and uh, trying to be honest about what you portray and you know. Uh, Cinema is definitely much too linear and concise to be reality, but you always want to have a feeling of authenticity, and that felt like an authentic moment. What would this character really do? What would this guy really do? Mm. Glad well, that connected with you. <laughs> no, no, totally, no, totally. Well, look, look, Michael, um, thank you very much for uh, giving us your time on the Ripflex podcast. Thank you. Listening to the Brit Fright Fest Preview Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.